Well, I was wondering if we were ever going to come to uh, the conclusion of Jonah. We left him hanging for quite a while. But today we come to Jonah chapter 4. So I ask you to take your Bible and turn there to Jonah 4. Jonah, of course, the prophet of God, called in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, to leave where he was and to go northeast to the city of Nineveh, also known as the Assyrians, who were the um, hated enemies of God's people. And God told Jonah to go there and preach repentance to that wicked city. And history tells us that uh, the Assyrians were unspeakably cruel people. I, I, I would blush sharing with you in a setting like this the, the things that they did to their enemies. It's beyond anything you could ever imagine. Um, you know, there's, there's cruelty, and then there's cruelty on a level that just makes you stop and go, wow, this, this is Satan at work here. No one could devise this kind of cruelty on another human being. And that was the Assyrians, and Jonah hated the Assyrians. They were the sworn enemy of Israel, and Jonah said, I'm not going. And he, of course, rather than going northeast, boarded a ship, paid the fare, and went as far west as he could go, around 2,200 miles or so, he was headed towards Tarshish to run from God, as he said in that first chapter, to try to escape the presence of God. He was running from God's call. And uh, we've seen over the weeks how God sent a violent storm onto that ship, and the ship was almost torn to pieces, and they threw Jonah overboard and the storm ceased immediately. Jonah was the cause of the problem. And rather than doing what, what would seem that Jonah deserved, letting him sink to the bottom of the ocean, it says that God prepared a great fish to come and swallow Jonah. And that was uh, an unimaginable thing to happen to anybody, and yet that was God's salvation coming to Jonah to rescue him, even though it wasn't a pleasant thing. And then we saw last week how God commanded that fish to go and spit Jonah out on the shore, and then God still wasn't finished with Jonah. God reassigned him to his original mission and said, Let's, let's give this another crack. Let's, let's see how we do this time. Okay, I'm not done with you. I'm not throwing you away because you blew it. My grace is, is big enough for this. So I'm going to recommission you, and I'm sending you now to the city of Nineveh. And so Jonah went to Nineveh, we saw last week, and he preached uh, a simple message, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, you know, when I bring the hard messages, at least I say a few more words than that to you. That would be a rough Sunday morning if I just got up and said 40 days and Greenville will be destroyed. Have a nice afternoon. <laughs> but that's what he preached. And uh, we're told that the entire city from the king down to the cows <laughs> repented. And of course, that's a figure of speech God is using there. But in order to really understand... Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, we have to turn back one verse to the last verse in Jonah chapter 3. As I told you, in the original writings, there were no chapter verse divisions. So Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, 
would have continued right on into where we're going to pick up today in chapter 4, verse 1. Here's Jonah 3, 10. Then God saw their works, that's the Ninevites, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful or exceeding grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. By the way, you go through the book of Jonah. I'm not going to have time to get into it today, but there are several words that appear over and over and over again. One is exceeding. One is great. Uh, one is prepared. God prepared a storm. God prepared a fish. You see it all the way through. <clears throat> God prepared a worm, and so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells the true story of a friend of his who worked with the down and out in Chicago, in the uh, really the worst imaginable parts of the city. And what I'm about to tell you is, um, it's revolting, and it's shocking, and it's very disturbing. But we need, to, we need to hear this because it happens in our world. It's happening all around us. He said this uh, prostitute came to him. She was sick. Um, she was weak. She was hungry. And she said she needed help. And during the process of trying to help her, she confessed that she had been renting out her two-year-old daughter to men 
because she realized that she could make more money in one hour doing that than she could in a whole night otherwise. The man said that he almost threw up hearing this. He couldn't process what he had just heard. And he said to her, trying to think of how he could help, he said to her, have you ever thought of going to church? And he said her face changed instantly. And he saw the rage in her eyes. And she said, church? Why would I go to church? I already feel bad enough about myself. They just make me feel worse. Unfortunately, she had actually um, diagnosed one of the big problems in churches today. Churches are known for a lot of things. They're known for big events. They're known for giving Harley Davidsons away. They're known for bringing in famous speakers and singers. But do you know a church that is characterized by grace? How tragic it is that we call ourselves followers of Christ and we look at the ministry of Christ and if anything, if anything um, identified his ministry, it was that he was known for the grace that he showed to all those who were hated and overlooked by the religious elite of the day. Prostitutes and sinners ran to Jesus, not from him. I don't see that happening in churches today. As a matter of fact, I was telling someone just recently, statistics show that you and I are the first generation in history where when lost people begin searching for truth, they no longer go to the church to find it. They don't come here. They search everywhere else. Mysticism, Satanism, crystals, everything else. The church is not on their list. Jesus was a man who sinners saw something in that drew them to him like a magnet. John wrote and said that Jesus was a man full of grace, full of grace and truth. His ministry was characterized by grace. We see it all throughout. In John chapter 4, Jesus intentionally went through Samaria. I love the King James. It says he must needs go through Samaria. That's not even proper English, but it's beautiful the way it says that. Jews would never go through Samaria. They wouldn't even get the dust of the Samaritans on the bottom of their sandals. They went around Samaria. And as they're walking up north there, you know, they get to the fork in the road and the disciples go, oh, Jesus, no, no, no we, go, we go this way. Jesus says, no, no, I must needs go through Samaria. I have an appointment. And at noon, he sat on the edge of a well and talked to a Samaritan woman. Jews did not speak to Samaritan women. I love the fact that Jesus broke all the religious rules of the day. He's my hero in that regard. 
I'm so sick of religious rules. This is why you will never hear me from up here give you a list of rules. Because you know why? They're probably wrong. If they're mine, they're probably wrong. All I can do is teach you what God's word says and leave it up to you and the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks to this woman and she had been married and divorced multiple times. She was so humiliated by her life that she came to draw water at the well at high noon, the hottest part of the day. Why? Because she knew no other women would be there. And she wouldn't have to hear the gossip. There she is. How many husbands you got now? But Jesus showed her such grace that she surrendered her life to him. She was born again, and she ran back and brought her whole village to Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is having dinner at the home of a Pharisee, something that he was not supposed to be doing, and he let a prostitute wipe his feet. Grace. He eats with tax collectors like Zacchaeus, who everybody hated because he had robbed them blind. And yet Jesus called him and said, I want to come to your house today. Grace. Oh, and let's not forget that he saved you and me. Not because we deserved it, not because of the good choices we had made, not because our parents were wonderful Christians, not because you earned it. He saved you by his grace. And the problem, I think, with us Christians is after a while, the honeymoon period is over, and we develop spiritual amnesia. We develop spiritual memory loss. We forget that the very thing that got us into the kingdom is the same thing that keeps us in the kingdom. It's grace. We can't work to earn it, and we can't work to keep it. It's grace. Now, I'm happy to say that from everything I've been able to see, this church has shown extraordinary grace over the years, and I'm so thankful for that. May we never become a church that looks down on an unsaved person who comes in to visit here because they didn't get the memo about how long their skirt is supposed to be or how their hair is supposed to be cut or any of that other stuff. I pray that we will be known forever as a church of grace. And I can just tell you, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If this church ever gets into legalism, which is rampant in Greenville, I will be gone so fast it'll make your head spin. Make no mistake. I will not be a part of that. And I don't think you want to either. But let me quickly say also that grace is not justifying sin. Grace is not about overlooking sin and excusing sin. That's why it's important to know that Jesus was a man of grace and truth. Grace without truth is compromise. Truth without grace is condemnation. Paul said, yes, speak the truth, but do it in love for goodness sake. What makes grace so special is that 
Grace isn't blind. Grace sees the failure, but it forgives the failure. It's a huge difference from just saying, oh, let's pretend it didn't happen. Grace acknowledges the offense. It says, yes, I see what you did, but I'm going to forgive 70 times 7. Why? Well, here's why. Because you and I become hypocrites the minute that we offer less grace to others than God showed to us. We've been saved by grace, and to withhold that grace from others is to assume that you deserved the grace, but they don't. God saved us by his grace, not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. We were never meant to be cul-de-sacs of grace. We're called to be conduits of grace. Grace is not something that we're supposed to hoard up and store away and keep to ourselves. Today in Jonah chapter 4, we learn some vital lessons about grace and about the heart of God. Jonah has gone to the city. He's preached God's message. And they repented. The whole city, in fact. So chapter 4 comes right on the heels of God showing monumental grace to this wicked city of Nineveh. God sees the people respond to his message. They um, they, they turned from their wicked ways. That, that's what repent means, to turn, to change direction. They repented in sackcloth and ashes. They, uh, they fasted. They called out to God, and God says, I'm going to withhold the judgment that you deserve, and instead I'm going to pour out my grace on you. And the result could well be, I don't know, uh, could well be the greatest move of God in history. I don't know. Seems to be. Um, Statisticians who study this kind of thing uh, say that they estimate there were around 600,000 people in that city. Chapter 4 here says there were 120,000 who didn't know their right hand from their left. It could mean a couple of things, but most people believe that it's referring to, to little children who haven't even reached that age yet. And so all of these people repent and one thing that we, we cannot miss in these events is that God has already rescued Jonah by grace. And so Jonah has become the perfect instrument to go to Nineveh to share God's grace because he's received it. He's experienced it. His life has been saved by it. And so he's the perfect person now to go and preach grace. As I said a minute ago, when, when God lavishes his grace on you, it's never meant to end with you. The question should always be, God, who do you want me to pass your grace on to? After all that God had done for Jonah, his assignment was clear. Take the grace I've shown you to the people of Nineveh and be just as glad 
that they're receiving my grace as you were when you received my grace. You would think that would be an easy job for anybody who just experienced the, the kind of grace Jonah experienced. You'd think that he would be thrilled about this, but he's not. Look at verse 1 again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. That word angry in the Hebrew means hot. He was hot. He was furious. Now, I'll say quickly, anger in itself is not a sin. But our motives for that anger and what we do with that anger can lead us to sin. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. The, the be angry part is a little confusing in English. What it, probably a better way to say it is, in your anger, do not sin. As far as I can read here in Jonah, and when Jesus mentions Jonah in the New Testament, as, as far as I can see, God never got angry at Jonah for his anger. But twice, God did question the validity of Jonah's anger. Look at verses uh, 1 through 3 again. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He became angry, so he prayed to the Lord. He prays and he says, Lord, this is exactly what I told you you were going to do. I knew it. I knew you were going to forgive these people. That's why I ran away. That's why I didn't want to go preach. I knew that you were a loving God, filled with compassion and grace, and I knew you were going to forgive them. Lord, just take my life. Kill me. And you're sitting there going, why is he angry about having a compassionate God? And now God begins to question in verse 4. He simply says, is it right for you to be angry? You hear the brilliance in that question? God's not pounding him over the head, telling him what a loser he is. This is a a brilliant thing for uh, leaders to understand, for parents to understand the questions you see asked of people in the Bible. Adam, where are you? It's a brilliant question. God knew where Adam was. Adam didn't know where Adam was. That's why God asked the question. So why, why is Jonah angry? Let's be clear, he's not angry because he received grace. Back in chapter 2, he's rejoicing over God's grace and goodness. He's okay when he gets grace. Jonah's upset because people he doesn't like receive grace. Everybody wants grace when it comes to them. But just not for that person over there. You know, that person? Mm-hmm. Anyone who thinks that doesn't understand grace. Somewhere deep inside, you would never verbalize this. But somewhere deep inside, you actually believe that you deserve God's grace. That you're somehow better than the people who don't deserve God's grace. You actually think you've earned it somehow. Our culture teaches us this, though. It says, study hard and you'll earn that PhD. 
Work hard and you'll earn that promotion. Save hard and you'll earn that house. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, by the way, until it comes to grace. You see, grace doesn't operate on the same system. You can bring all the merits you've ever earned in your life to grace, and grace says, I'm sorry, those credits don't count here. They're worth nothing. It would be like taking Monopoly money to the bank and trying to deposit it and then getting in a furious, heated argument with the teller as to why she's not accepting this money. Well, everybody knows that Monopoly money only has value in the world of Monopoly. It has no value in the real world. It's the same with grace. None of our good works or none of our bad deeds have any value in the economy of grace. Both of those are true. All your good works cannot buy you an ounce of grace. But listen, the other side of that coin is true as well. All of your bad deeds cannot keep God's grace from you. That's why the Pharisees were so angry at Jesus. They had gone to the finest religious schools. They had memorized all the religious commands. They went through a list of religious steps every day. And now Jesus is saying that that prostitute is closer to the kingdom of God than they are? They were furious. We've earned it. Jesus says, yeah, but all of your effort and work, it's monopoly money in my kingdom. It doesn't count. So what grace should actually do when we think about it is it should humble us. It should break us. It should keep us on our knees It should keep thanksgiving and praise in our mouth every day of our life. God, thank you. I don't deserve this. As Jaron said, it's only because of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus that you and I can stand righteous before a holy God. Jonah is angry because God blessed people he doesn't like. God says, Jonah, should you really be angry about this? By the way, you know, I I alluded to this a moment ago, but whenever God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because he's lacking information. It's like when you were young, you were little, and you were slouching at the dinner table, and your mom looked at you and said, how are you sitting? And you wanted to say, you're looking at me, aren't you? But you didn't, because you knew if you did, you'd wake up in the hospital in a full body cast. Uh, Your mom already knew the answer to the question. She just wanted you to know the answer to the question. And this is so incredible. It's so stern and yet gentle, what God does with Jonah. You have a right to be angry. And it's really what God follows up with that is really the stinger. God pinpoints the real problem. He says, oh, oh, I see. I see, Jonah. You're angry with me for blessing the people who you don't like. 
and who don't deserve it. So let's think about this. You rebelled and ran from me. Um, You got angry when these people repented. You're in sin right now. You're complaining because it's hot. So I make a plant grow to give you shade. While you're sinning, I bless you. You have a right to be angry? Look at verses 10 and 11 again. The Lord said, You've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, you care more about a plant than you do about the eternal souls of these people. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Listen, this is, this is very hard for us to take in sometimes. Let me just put what God is saying to Jonah in real terms that we're going to understand. God didn't just die for you. He died for that ex who committed adultery and left you. Hmm. God didn't just die for you. He died for that person who swindled you out of tens of thousands of dollars in a business deal. God didn't just die for the abused. He died for the abuser. God didn't just die for the teenage girl who was murdered. God died for the one who murdered her. Wow, that's hard to take in. Jesus said on the cross, hanging there, bleeding and dying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And yet how often in our life do we create segmented groups of people in our mind and we think, Well, we're in. We deserve God's grace, but those people there, they deserve death. Man, this is tough. It's tough to swallow this. I want to say again, though, so there's no misunderstanding of what we teach here. Grace is not the absence of justice. Grace and justice are not mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Grace and justice must go hand in hand. Or you've got a real problem. I think the only way for righteous, godly justice to be administered is when it's done in the shadow of grace. Grace doesn't pretend that the injustice never occurred, but grace can love and forgive even while righteous judgment is being dispensed. We need to leave the judgment part up to God. He said, vengeance is mine. I'll repay. I love what, I don't have these verses, but I love what Peter wrote about 30 years after the death of Christ. Peter writes, and he's thinking back, and he says, boy, I remember all 
the stuff they did to Jesus. They persecuted him. They spat on him. They hurled insults at him. And when they did that, he did not retaliate. But there's no period there. Because that wouldn't give us the answer. So what did he do then? It says, instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You get that? That's the answer we need right there. You are going to face injustice in this life. And there's something that God has put into us that, boy, it just fires off when we see injustice to us or to someone else. Even something small, like standing in line at the DMV, and you've been there for 18 hours, and someone cuts in line in front of you. There's injustice. There's this sense of justice needs to be done. It rises up in you. Well, that's actually a right thing. You, you just got to be careful how you play that out. Don't go slug the guy. But that sense of, hey, a wrong has been committed. That comes up in us. And when that happens in life, when that boss treats you unfairly, when the spouse is unkind, the, the list of things that we could make, when that stuff happens, how do we respond? Do we just bite our lip and go, oh, well, I guess I'll get through this? No. It's not going to help us at all. We do what Jesus did. We don't retaliate. Instead, we say, Lord, I entrust this moment to you because you are the one who judges justly. I'll leave it in your hands. I realize it's easier said than done. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You cut me off on the way out of here. I'm going <laughs> to. But it is, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to process and be at peace with the fact that God's grace is not just for the oppressed, it's for the oppressor. You know, that little video clip we saw last week of Wesley's, of the child trafficking. I, I, I still know people who don't believe that goes on. Oh, I just, no, let's just keep our heads in the sand. Or that's a conspiracy theory, you know. No, it goes on, it goes on. But, but I was thinking as I was going over this message one more time last night, that video came to mind. Oh, I want to show grace to all those little girls who've been abused. But God also wants to show grace to the ones who are abusing them. That's grace. Let me close with this. As I told you on the first Sunday several years ago when we started this, uh, the book of Jonah reveals the heart of God. The book of Jonah is not about a fish. It's about the heart of God. This book exposes the, the true heart of God and how much he longs for every person to come to know him. In this book, we get a beautiful look at God's heart. So the question is, do I have the heart of God? One really good indicator of the condition of your heart is 
How do you respond when God shows grace to people who've wronged you? Do you rejoice when people who've wronged you succeed and prosper? Man, y'all looking at me like you want me to leave right now. (laughs) I want to go back to these two closing verses one more time because they're so important. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord's trying to drive this point home to Jonah just as he's doing with us right now. The Lord said, Jonah, you've had pity on a plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow. And should I not pity Nineveh? All those lost people there, Jonah. Should I not pity them? It's people who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. And then we come to the end and we we go, but that's it? And we turn the page and we look for the rest of the story. Surely, It can't end there. This is not the conclusion to a story. How how does God end the book right there? We're never told how Jonah responds. What did he say? How did he respond to God saying, my grace is for everybody, Jonah. It's not just for you. Well, someone summed it up this way. I'll leave you with this quote. He said, the book of Jonah carries no conclusion. Because it summons us to write the final paragraph. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide our own conclusion to its message. For you are Jonah. I am Jonah. You see, we read events like this and we distance ourselves from Jonah. We sort of look through our lens of judgment on him and we point out all his faults. We do this throughout the Bible. Barabbas. When Jesus is being crucified and the crowd calls for Barabbas, the wicked murderer, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. We we look at Barabbas as someone who's so foreign to us, and yet here's what, what we need to learn from that. You're Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. Jesus took your place and my place. He died on the spot where we should have died. And it's the same thing here. So the question is, how do you respond to God's grace when others receive that grace? There's no resolution to this story because you have to answer that question. I really believe that's why God just stopped it right there. Will you and I, by our lives, write an alternate ending to this story? How do you respond to the grace of God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your heart that throughout the Bible we see that you long for everyone to come to know you, 
for your glory to be spread to the ends of the earth, that all men would praise you because you're deserving of it. And I thank you for, despite what the world says about you, that you're a hateful, angry God, I thank you that what we actually see is that you're a God of perfect balance between justice and grace. And you teach us that lesson so beautifully. You send warning after warning after warning to people who've turned their backs on you, pleading with them, calling them back, telling them that judgment is coming. And you give them every chance to repent because of your grace. And yet, Lord, you do judge injustices against you. So, Lord, this message today is one that... uh, It's just a little hard to take in. I pray, God, you would give us a fresh awareness of the value of the grace that we've been shown that we didn't deserve or earn at all. And once that begins to dawn on us again, that it would change the way we view others. knowing that everyone, everyone can be the recipient of your grace. And sometimes the only way they're going to receive that grace is if we take it to them. So Lord, help us with this, would you? Uh, We don't want to be, we don't want to be Christians who have all the answers and don't live it out. We want to truly be followers of Christ. We want to walk in his steps. We want to imitate his life. We want to live this out. So God, enable us by your spirit to do so for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.